personally for me my take on this one was i was i was kind of blown away that that the soporific tearjerker of an album it's like these english guys found a way to inject some racism into it it's like (laughs) it's like how how can we get some racist stuff in here Hello, 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 and welcome to yet another episode of 1001 Album Complaints, the podcast where lifelong friends and musicians go through the list of 1001 albums you must hear before you die, break them down, give you some really great insight on them, give an opinion as to whether or not they belong on that list. We are very excited this week to be digging into the Bee Gees Trafalgar pre-disco Bee Gees. Very exciting album to be going through. Now, if you have not listened to the Bee Gees Trafalgar, I encourage you right now, pause this podcast, go listen to the album, come back. It will greatly enhance the enjoyment of this episode as we start to talk about some of the very specific things on this album. If uh, you are already familiar with this album, great. Let's dive right in. We have... This week, as always, a group of musicians, critics, lifelong friends who are getting together to talk about this album. I am Tom Monahan. Uh, you know, I said bass player, love harmony. Probably going to talk about that a lot. Up next, we're going to have James. James, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, I'm James Cafeter. Let's see. Um, I've been playing keys for, I don't know, say uh, 15, 20 years, something like that. Less, you know, I'll probably have less to say in terms of the vocal harmonies, honestly. But that's, you know. I'm not sure that that's necessarily a negative thing. Um, <laughs> Everybody loves harmony, James. <laughs> it is true. Everyone does love harmony. Um, I, I think that my insights on this record are probably less musical and more long lines of the content of the record. Is what Ooh, I would probably say. Foreshadowing. I like it. <laughs> Phil, I think it's your turn. Yep. So I'm Phil. Uh, Phil Matarese. I've played guitar for maybe 20 plus years, keyboards. And my comments are going to be focused primarily on the timpani. Really want to talk about the timpani <laughs> use on this record. Lush orchestration. Yeah, it's lush is a good word for this one. I'm Rob, played guitar for 20 years. I On paper, this seems like an album that I would really, really like. I like harmony. I like the 70s. And yet I have complaints. Well... Talk about this album. So Rob mentioned the 70s. This was released September 1971 in the U.S. It was released a couple months later in the U.K. for some reason. It was the ninth album by the Bee Gees. Album number nine, 1971. Pre-disco, nine albums. A little background on Bee Gees. They are primarily the Brothers Gibb, which I believe is where the name comes from, the Bee Gees. Yeah, I think so. So uh, formed in 1958. Ooh. 1958, they formed this band. Ooh. Now, here's the, here's the thing that is uh, a little bit crazy is that, all right, so we're giving background to the artists here. They were born on the Isle of Man to British parents. Barry was born first. He was born in 1946 which means that he was 12 when Bee Gees formed. And then 
Robin and Maurice, they were twins. They were born in 1949. So Robin, Maurice, and Barry Gibb, the three Gibb brothers, have always been the central core of the Bee Gees. Now, they started their first band in 1955, which is actually like right after they moved to Australia. Rob, we mentioned last week yeah. when we were, uh, we were talking about doing this album, I thought that they were Australian. Apparently, they moved to Australia in 1955 and spent a decent amount of time there um and that's how they sort of first formed their band was in australia we were both right i read that their first band was a skiffle band yeah similar to, to Landon <laughs> and mccartney right <laughs> i had to look that up as well um, but yeah like i guess you can say that like they formed the band when like they were like nine and twelve um but uh either way yeah basically yeah they're hanson it's funny because I, I had them pegged as like uh, they were like the Aerosmith of their time where like they had uh, popularity and then they, their popularity waned. And then like a new thing came along and helped to, you know, bring their popularity back for Aerosmith. It was MTV music videos where they came back into popularity because yeah. they made really good music videos for the Bee Gees. It was disco. Um, but we're talking about stuff before disco. All right. They got their start. In uh, you know, got the first record contract in 1967. So, uh, as you can probably imagine, 1967, a band of three brothers who can sing really well. Let's take a stab at who they were trying to sound like. <laughs> <laughs> I think they did. They they've moved back to Britain specifically because they wanted to be a part of the British invasion, right? Yes. Yeah. They were uh, they were very much trying to be the next Beatles. Um, interestingly enough. Uh, they got I their first record contract. They, would, they failed in that mission? <laughs> uh, I would say they did fail in that mission. We'll, we'll talk about it a little bit later. I think that uh, Maurice does a pretty good Paul McCartney impression on the bass. But um, their first single, which is like, they, they have a history of just naming their songs terribly. But the first single that they put out got a lot of play because DJs apparently thought that it was a new Beatles song. And <laughs> it, it was called New York Mining Disaster 1941. Great idea. Yeah, that's a great topic for a song. That is the worst name for a song I've ever heard. And it is extraordinarily literal. Like it is, I listen to the song. It's, that's exactly what it's about. There is no hidden meaning there. It's talking about a mining disaster in New York in 1941. But it does sound pretty Beatles-esque. And apparently at the time, like, what were the Beatles putting out in 67 that they were like, oh, yeah, New York mining disaster 1941. That's the logical progression of the Beatles. Yeah. This is like, why don't we do it in the road era Beatles, I think. <laughs> yeah, it was. It, it very much has a kind of like a rubber soul ripoff sound to it. Um, let's let's take a listen to that for a second, because I just I, I was fascinated by this topic and how literal it was and how much it's clearly just a Beatles crib. In the event of something happening to me There is something I would like you all to see It's just a photograph of someone that I knew Have you seen my wife, Mr. Jones? Do you know? So, okay, so we're back. That was New York Mining Disaster, 1941. The thing that jumped out to me, like, right away is, um, 
it kind of sounded like that song because you like me that much and i like you like i think uh, they literally use that exact same melody clip mm-hmm. in there at some point i think they like stealing melodies actually maybe we're gonna I talk about that big, maybe we're gonna talk about that once or twice <laughs> <laughs> so anyway that's how they got their stuff <laughs> i just want to say that from listening to that clip a little bit it really did give me the impression of the beatles asleep at the wheel it was like the Beatles just kind of <laughs> zonked out while they were piloting this ship. They got it's like if the Beatles got serious drug problems, that's what right. they started putting out. Well, you, you you alluded to it, Tom, but how many? I mean, they have a, a heck of a lot of records before disco. Oh, Did you yeah. say nine before the disco era? No, 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 nine before Trafalgar is number nine, and then after Trafalgar, they put out more before they got to disco. So, like, Trafalgar came out, To Whom It May Concern came out in 72, Life in a Tin Can came out in 73, and then Mr. Natural, which I believe was the first one. I think that had Jive talking on it. What's the track list on that? No, I'm sorry. Mr. Natural is not even uh, disco era. They were churning. They were churning these bad boys out. Yeah. 1975 to 1979 at Eric Clapton's suggestion. Yes. We brought this up on the same house. That was, and that was when they did jive talking, they did jive talking. They got the disco beat when they went to, uh, to 461 ocean. Yeah. Ridiculous. Well, I just, I just, when I was looking at their discography, I was thinking the Beatles were turning out, albums at that clip right in their heyday even and then only lasted for six years or whatever and they were amazing at it i don't think maybe the bg just thought they were good enough songwriters that that would work but it, it didn't it just doesn't it suffers from that one album every nine months it's not a good idea so this was let's let's talk a little bit about trafalgar as we said ninth album from the bgs um couple of things happened preceding this album that I think color a lot of what's on this album and in some ways don't color it in, w- in ways that I thought it would. So it was released in September 1971. Like in mid-1969, Robin Gibb went solo and was like, yeah, I've been doing this Bee Gees thing for too long. He decided he wanted to go solo. Robin Gibb, who is not credited with playing any instruments on right. these albums at all, just sings, went solo and... Surprise, surprise, guys. Mid-1969 to go solo, mid-1970. He's like, hey, guys, maybe we should do this again. <laughs> we should give it a crack at this. Well, I mean, they had missed, he had missed an entire album cycle, essentially, there. You know, like, he could have made a Bee Gees record. In oh, this- no. They, they did. They recorded, no, they recorded an album without him called, <laughs> called Cucumber Castle. Um, and you'll never guess. You will never guess who they got to replace Robin on uh, the album Cucumber Castle. Their other brother? Their sister, Leslie Gibbs. <laughs> oh, man. Wow. It's just like, do they have no friends? Wow. Is that what's going on here? You got Cucumber nine Castle. albums. Yeah. I, that is quite an image. I watched the... <laughs> So HBO recently put out a, a documentary about the Beaches, and I watched some of it. And they talked about this period and how Robin Gibb went on tour. He went to some like festival, some outdoor festival in New Zealand. He got booked there as a solo act, except when he showed up, the, apparently the booker had told him the Bee Gees were going to show up. So they're just like throwing tomatoes at him. And, yeah, <laughs> apparently it's very awkward. Nobody wants to just see Robin Gibb's solo material. Definitely not. I kind of wish 
looking back, I kind of wish that we had listened to Cucumber Castle instead of Trafalgar. <laughs> that option is still available to you. That option is, it'll be on the Spotify playlist. We'll pick a selection and put it on there. So anyway, they get back together and it's like, you know, mid 1970, they're back together. They record this in like January to April of 1971. Um, the other thing that happened, which you guys are definitely going to feel in the content of this, is that Barry Gibb is going through a divorce in 1970. Um, I, so hold on. I had the exact dates here. Barry Gibb was going through a divorce in... Uh, bu- 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 oh, come on. Where are you? Da- da- da. In, he got divorced in 1970. All right. So Barry Gibb, 1970, goes through a divorce. I think that you will uh, be able to tell from some of the content of these songs. And in the interest of getting to the music and setting the stage for what this sounds like, we're just going to play a clip of the opening track on this album, (laughs) which, again, I think speaks to the subject matter. How can you mend a broken heart? Let's spin that one for the people real quick. I can think of younger days When living for my life Was everything a man could want to do I could never see tomorrow I was never told about the sorrow So how can you mend a broken heart is clearly he's, he is all torn up inside. He went through a divorce of a woman that he had met when he was very young and they had gotten married and he was clearly very in love. And, you know, he's just a broken man. Oh, no, wait. He had already met a woman and remarried before this album even came out. <laughs> he already met a woman and remarried before this album came out. There's like wistful divorce songs on there, but he met a woman who was like a former like Miss Scotland and married her like four months later. And to his credit, they are still together, but like he has a bunch of songs about like how his heart is all broken. And now he's like in a new relationship and a happy one. Cause they're already married. <laughs> I was it's it's a pretty hard sell to write a wistful a wistful treatise a look back on divorce it's pretty it's honestly being in the midst of a divorce right now you know I wouldn't I would never in a a million years even if pressed by my brothers (laughs) theoretically when I'm in a band theoretically with my brothers I think that it would be a hard sell to be like yeah why don't you just why don't you write a like a kind of soppy, kind of soppy, drippy one about your ex-wife? Well, How does that sound? Now hold on. I there is one, at least one truly great divorce album in Bob Dylan's Blood on the Tracks. I think the challenge that, that Tom's putting out there is the evil eye that your new wife is gonna be giving you the entire time <laughs> you're coming, you're strumming these songs on the acoustic guitar over, over cocktails. How Can You Mend a Broken Heart was their first number one U.S. single. They had to play that shit all the time. Maybe, yeah. And How Can You Mend a Broken Heart? You marry Miss Scotland. That's, that's how you oh. do it. Sure. Good okay. spin. It's an easy, it's an easy yeah. formula. Good spin. So, so James, yeah, what were your overall impressions of this album? We'll, we'll talk a little bit more specifically about How You Can Mend a Broken Heart. Uh, but, like, 
What'd you think of that song? What'd you think about the album? Well, I mean, my overall impression of the album, I'd say it was kind of like a, a sleepy pop schlock outing, you know, sort of a little bit of sad bastard music, kind of asleep at the wheel, sad bastard music. Um, it was like a B cut of Elton John falling asleep after taking Quaaludes is kind of my like, <laughs> it's like, kind of like if you, you know, if you, if you got Elton John really drugged up, got him to like bring, bring out like the worst songs in his songbook and kind of record a record of them, you know, with like a p- patina of sadness kind of slathered on top is kind of my, that's more or less my impression of the record. All right. Phil, what'd you think about this record? Overall, I mean, I think, you know, we'll we'll unpack it as we get into these later tunes, but I think there are some interesting things. I definitely think, you know, you're talking about how they're trying to sound like the Beatles. Like, there are definitely elements to me where this sounds like Let It Be. He sounds like he's trying to sound like John Lennon. Uh, But yeah, overall, I mean, it was... it was growing on me after like the third or fourth listen, but the, the, the initial take was sort of a pass. Very sleepy, very sleepy, very nice string sections, uh, but some very odd orchestral choices in the timpani. I believe there's a song where it sounds like I literally think they're banging on trash cans. I would guess <laughs> it's, uh, I think it's in Remembering. I'm sure they're timpanis, but they're terrible. You're talking about Remembering. That's all. That song that is so yes. terrible. There's so so many remembrances of remembering. I disagree with almost everything Phil just said. I it it did the opposite of grow on me. Clearly, they're great singers with great harmony, but the songwriting is so bland. And as James said, asleep at the wheel is right. I think they might have gotten it into our, their heads that if you just add three part harmony to songs, you have a hook. Not so, brothers. Give not so. Yeah, t- it takes a disco beat, guys. <laughs> Well, yes. here's here's the thing that I was like, number one, we'll talk about some of these like terrible production errors, basically, that like, I, I can't believe this is your ninth time in a professional studio and you're still making these kind of errors. Number one, we'll talk about that later. But like, number two, this was supposed to be a band reformed, reinvigorated, back together. And it did not seem like they had any energy. It, it's not like... They were like, hey, guys, let's get back together. Let's do it again. We really got to get in there. There's, do we have more to give? It was more like Robin was like, I can't make a living um, without you guys. And so, like, let's just throw a bunch of crap together here. <laughs> see if we can, you know, see if we can eat, like, 120 grand a year each out of this, and then we'll be pretty happy. Because he also complains about money a couple of times on this album, which uh, I find to be interesting. <laughs> I, I have a serious question. Do we know anything about the the demographic of their fan base? Like, were young people ever actually listening to this music, or was this? That's a really good question. Solely <laughs> for middle aged women, you know, <laughs> beer drinking husbands, <laughs> crying into their beers. I really have no idea, but you make a good point. I can't imagine like teenagers like you know like hey man we got the van my parents are away for the weekend we're gonna get a keg gonna blow a couple of jays gonna listen to israel and, you know just, this just, just hang gym. out man i got this Check record out these strings <laughs> trafalgar dude you know what i'm talking about yeah, Eight dude. naval battles dude, dude. <laughs> horatio nelson all right <laughs> No, but like, all right, so talking specifically about How Can You Man a Broken Heart, like, I don't hate this song, but 
what is the deal with that vocal affectation that he's doing right at the very beginning? I, I feel like it comes up a couple of times. Agreed, it comes yeah. up a co- absolutely. This was yeah. on my short list. I I, th- I think it's Robin's this voice. This is like I think Robin just has a bad voice, and they were fighting. I think that's Barry's voice. I think that's Barry's voice because Barry was listed as like the lead singer on this album, on this song. Like he wrote it and he was listed first as like the lead vocalist. And I think this is Barry Gibb before he figured out I just have to sing a falsetto all the time. Because this is like pre, like Barry Barry was the guy with the falsetto voice that like really was like the out front falsetto singer. I think he just didn't understand how to not do a John Lennon or like a crappy Paul McCartney impression. And, you know, he didn't really find his own voice. And uh, until halfway through the song, because he would sound normal. He sounds normal once he warms up. But that this is something that Adam talks about is like, you know, when you actually get to the when you actually start pushing all the affectation has to drop away because you actually have to start thinking about hitting notes. But when you're sort of just doing the initial part of the song, you kind of do like a weird <laughs> voice thing like that. I don't understand. Think, it. I think it's like their baseline for what music they like is medieval balladeers. It's so it's so goofy and dorky. And, and, the, Be- and the Beatles. And the Beatles, yeah. yeah. And the Beatles. What if those two things met? Yeah. It's like be- because, essentially, is like the song that they're they're emulating, right? Oh, they wish. Medieval Balladeers, medieval Balladeers meets the Beatles. Yeah. They also, they write a bunch of songs about, like, historic events in a weird way. Like Trafalgar, clearly a big historic event. Uh, as we, as we referenced earlier, clearly the New York mining disaster of 1941. <laughs> we all, right, we yeah, all so remember infamous, that one. Infamous. I listened to their album Odessa as well, which because it was listed as like, oh, Odessa was like progressive and like, oh yeah, it was a real departure. It was for the them. Trafalgar. The title. Day. Well, the title track of the album Odessa. The opening lines of the song Odessa are 14th of February, 1899. The British ship Veronica was lost without a sign. (laughs) They're really stuck. So I heard that they were known for almost never writing lyrics until they were in the studio. And so literally, maybe that's their brigand history books in the Encyclopedia Britannica and leaping through it. Apparently, it's them and Nirvana. It's like those are the two bands that just didn't. They would show up at the studio with no no lyrics. Heard that all right for Nirvana. Nirvana got the top end of that one, I think. It's fairly <laughs> obvious, right? But we should bring it up that one of the things about this song, it's a it's a decent song in some ways. The fact that there is another, and I didn't realize this going into the album, and in fact, it took me a couple listens to realize that I knew it from Al Green. The fact that there's a cover version of this song that is so far superior that that, that hurts it a lot. Yeah. You know, give him credit for the source material. Uh, at one of the songs later on, he mentions, like, uh, you know, you're trying to turn me into a James Brown or something. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't think anybody had any illusions that you were going to be a James Brown there, Barry. What, one more thing is that it's what ended up in Al Green's hands as a single, and Al Green is such a great delivery man, you know, as a singer. But I, I also read an anecdote that it was originally offered to Andy Williams before the Bee Gees decided to record it for themselves. So from the whitest person on earth over to Al Green. I think that's I think that's great. Andy Williams. <laughs> <laughs> We're uh, no. Well, let's uh, let's back it up for just one second, because I, 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 I neglected to mention this uh, coming up because I, I got a big belly laugh out of this one. We talk about like what was the number one single when. An album was released. The number one single in the United States in September 1970 
uh, September 1971 when this was released. It was almost, almost the song Spanish Harlem by Aretha Franklin, written by Phil Spector and Jerry Lieber. You know, two fantastic producers, fantastic songwriters. But it was kept out of the top spot by Go Away Little Girl by Donny Osmond. (laughs) Off of the album... <laughs> off of the album from you with love donnie and written by none other than my favorite carol king and her husband at the time jerry goffin go away little girl we should listen to that on our own go away little girl it's uber creepy now the reason it's uber creepy is not what you think because you hear donnie osmond's writing a song called go away little girl and you're picturing like a man singing about go away little girl I listened to it and I had to keep checking to make sure I was not listening to the wrong version. Cause Donnie Osmond sounds like a girl. Like, I don't know if he was like prepubescent. He sounds like a little girl on the album. It's like Jackson five, Michael Jack. Yes. He, he sounds like, yes. he, is he that sounds like a little girl. 12. Or is that a, an yes. is that a pitch shift situation? I, th- I think, I think that's his voice. I think he was just one of those like young products that was out there. It's almost like Wayne Newton. Um, oh, he's a kid. Uh, oh, I get he's it. He's a kid. He's like an actual kid. That's why it's like not as creepy. But uh, yes, Donny Osmond. This goes to show you that people have always loved terrible, music. terrible, terrible music. So Rob, I I have to say throughout this record and like the whole time I'm listening to it, I was I was trying to put myself in mind of an SCTV skit that I only vaguely remember that you probably have a much clearer memory of. Mm, yeah, it involved a guy singing from a couch. And like and possibly falling asleep like mid song. Oh, Perry over. Como. It was oh, them yeah, joking on it was Eugene right. Levy doing Perry Como. <laughs> and it was like the I, I need to stay in bed tour or something. <laughs> so the premise was he was on stage when he was like half asleep and in bed while he was singing. It's, I think I think they took a page out of that book. Maybe they saw the skit and were like, let's just try that. Let's give it a shot. <laughs> Any any final thoughts on uh, how can you mend a broken heart? I actually think they have one of the more, I was really looking for something interesting musically. And I I think even the chords and the the structures of these songs were mostly pretty darn bland. The one thing I'll compliment them on on the the whole record is the beginning of this song where it jumps up a third. I think it goes from like a D chord to an F sharp. Kind of feels like the key changes, even though it doesn't. And it recenters. Because my first thought when listening to this tune was, this is a really strange way to start a hit song. Like you said, the vocal affect, it's like almost tuneless. Presumably they did it for this little jump up and and harm harm anything, but I think it's one of the more interesting changes, if not the most interesting change on the entire record. (laughs) They came out hot. Yeah, they came out hot. Exactly. Kind of blew it in the first three seconds there. They came out lukewarm. <laughs> they came out lukewarm, and then they went on to what might be the worst aged song in history in terms of subject matter, Israel. Um, yeah. So <laughs> my problems with this song. If you are going to write about, like, you know, maybe the most storied and controversial and fought over region in all of human history, and... Like, you come up with lines that are like, where there's sand, where there's beautiful sand. Yeah, you know, you, you got a kind of feeling that's just grand. Like, that that's what true. you have to say about Israel? What grand. the hell, man? Extremely grand. 
Yeah, the word Israel is at least 50% of the lyrics of this song, right? Yep. Yeah, oh, it, yep. it appears a yeah. foolish amount of times. Personally, for me, my take on this one was I was I was kind of blown away that the, the soporific tearjerker of an album, it's like these English guys found a way to inject some racism into it. It's like, <laughs> it's like how, how can we get some racist stuff in here? It's, it's all the fucking song about Israel on here. I, I, I thought, to your point from earlier, James, I thought this one really gave me terrible elton john song vibes yeah, yeah. yep asleep at the wheel elton john all the way on this one pretty bad so this is like 19 this is post 1967 israel arab war right so you know which uh i feel like <laughs> this, this is like, a really this good like a, job this is a very fresh topic <laughs> well there's like you know there's like there's some serious stuff going on there you know <laughs> exactly. like it's pre pre yom kippur war but uh you know post like 1967 yeah, 67 would have been fresh on people's minds for sure yeah fresh on people's minds and what you have to say about it is like the most not only like uncreative lyrics but unprovocative lyrics like it's it's almost like they were just like yeah hey israel's been in the news a lot lately let's write a song about israel yeah and it's like oh huh i mean it's like it really is it's like a pastiche of the concept of writing a topical song it's like it's like oh yeah here's a random topic uh israel all right go yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. Uh, hmm. uh you're the only one israel tell me about it tell me about it tell me about it take me into your arms and make me feel your goodness what, the f- what are you talking about yeah oh israel i wonder I hope uh, I hope that some uh, you know intrepid reporter is uh, sticking a microphone in the one remaining brothers Gibb's face and asking them to justify their their stance on Israel in light of the stuff that's been happening recently. Not even not been happening recently. The stuff that has been reported on heavily recently. Barry Barry's the last one left, right? Even though he's the oldest. Barry's the last one left. Yeah, the Robin and Maurice died. Apparently, Maurice died like suddenly and kind of out of nowhere. And then Robin died after a protracted illness. They had they had a younger brother too. He died young, I think. Really? It's yeah, almost Andy. like uh sister. I don't know what happened to the sister. I don't know what happened to the sister. Faded yeah. into obscurity after that one record. Keep covered, Jess. <laughs> <laughs> it's their swan song. You know, I I think I can find something positive to say about this song. I think the strings at the end are, are very beautiful and robust. And and I love the way they come in. They're very like theatric. Uh, I'm talking maybe like two and a half, three minutes in. Uh, so it, it actually, I think though, as you guys have started ripping this record apart, it, it to me begs a different question, which is who wrote these strings? Because they're actually quite nice. And they stand out.
Uh, that was Bill Bill Shepard. Mm. A guy named Bill Shepard did the orchestral arrangement for this album. Oh, I'm curious what some of his other work has been. Yeah. Well, so we, we did not talk directly about this, but I think it now is a good time to bring it up. It's just sort of like the disparity in what I would consider to be the sort of contributions on this album. Because uh, Barry Gibb... And wrote most of the songs. Robin Gibb helped Barry Gibb write some of the songs. Maurice Gibb helped Barry Gibb write some of the songs. But uh, if you look at like the credits, you have uh, Barry Gibb on lead vocal, harmony, and rhythm guitar. You have Robin Gibb on lead vocal and harmony. You have Maurice Gibb on lead vocal and harmony and bass and piano and mellotron and guitar and organ and drums on the song Trafalgar. Like it just seems like a little bit of an imbalance there. And I'm sure that, you know, Barry was like, listen, I wrote a year the song, but Israel I wrote like clearly I'm contributing way more to this album. Mm-hmm. But Maurice, Maurice got to be like, yeah, but I'm, I'm like playing everything. And Robin and Robin was the one who wanted to go solo. The guy who did nothing but co-write some songs and sing mostly backups. Oddly, people get tomatoes thrown at them for decisions like that. I've heard. I know we don't like love to comment on people's appearances, but Robin is also (laughs) goofiest looking by far. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Got to get an eyeful of these Gibbs. Well, what is um, Barry? I feel like aged well into the feathered hair look, but I he kind of has a big head. And like the the big sort of big hair really helped him out a lot in that in that sense because I just feel like he's got a big head. Balanced out his head. True. Maurice looks like he was like by the time it got to the disco era, Maurice was like losing his hair already. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Robin, yeah, Robin looks weird. Robin looks like uh, he was the the less nourished of the two twins right. in the womb, yeah. maybe. But they but they all have. It's like their faces are like seventy or eighty percent teeth. <laughs> Say, yeah, made in England, yep. man. Beautiful teeth, big beautiful teeth. Oh, right. So, anything else before we go on to uh, you know, quite possibly the most wistful song about divorce I've ever heard? Uh, remembering. I was remembering, you know, filing some paperwork, you know, with my ex-wife the other day. It was really wonderful, really wonderful. <laughs> you know, we showed up to court. We put the paperwork in there. It was just, hmm. That was, you know, <laughs> battle over child custody. That was, hmm. Oh, yeah. Mm. Wonderful. It's like, remembering <laughs> I gave you half my stuff. <laughs> <laughs> remembering the child support paycheck you just wrote. <laughs> remembering that. That was a great feeling. 
this is why I thought this is why I'm pretty sure that that weird vocal treatment before was Barry because this song is definitely Barry Gibb, and he does a really weird vocal oh, the, treatment right at the, the beginning. moment the song starts. They lost me. Like I'm talking yeah. like by second two, I was uh, out. <laughs> Listen, I'm only referencing the Wikipedia article here, but this says lead vocals Robin. That's what made me think the opposite. So are we just getting mixed up here? Uh, no. Hold on. Remembering. Oh, yeah. It does say lead vocals Robin. You're right. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's clearly Barry wrote that song. Yeah, right? songwriter Barry Barry just Maurice. got divorced. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe it, maybe it really was Robin. In which case, and it you know, really was Robin. I mean, right. it would make much more sense because I mean, the, 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 I would say the thing that like really kills me about Trafalgar overall is it seems totally disingenuous. Is there's like it's you know they're yeah. soporific, sure you know that's a maybe a flaw. I mean, I love plenty of soporifics uh, records. Yeah, I'm not yeah. hearing a lot of pathos on here. There's no, 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 no yeah. very little pathos. They're not taking you on the journey at all. They're not. You're not. You don't feel sad listening to this record. You feel like kind of like you're being confronted with the concept of sadness at a distance i i kept with with robin because i was picturing robin loving these ballads and his goofy voice it kept reminding me of holy grail with the dude that follows around eric idol and is talking about all the nasty ways he's going to be killed yes Brave, robin, Brave yes, sir robin. robin came forth from camelot <laughs> Well, their their Wikipedia page does list them as Baroque pop. Baroque pop. Wow. Their genre, their their official Wikipedia, well, Trafalgar's Wikipedia genre is okay. soft rock and Baroque pop. Well, listen, like this this song is a mess. It's like not the, terrible. The Ooh. chorus. The 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 way the melody like goes down, it first of all it's kind of out of I guess Robin's range. That remembering when you were my wife, like going down, and then he goes down again, and it's like it really robs any of the forward momentum. Like melodies in a chorus should generally build, and the first half of this chorus is like it goes down and then it goes down again. It doesn't really make me feel like there's any movement, and I, I'm not going to give them the credit enough to say that like they were trying to tell a story about how like being in a divorce situation makes you feel like you're just going down and stuck in a rut, and there's no forward progression. No, none of that. I think they just wrote a bad melody. That is some and, English uh, professor yeah. level interpretation there. I don't know if they were going for that, but I just think I, I think part of what you're seeing is that Robin and Barry were fighting over who was going to be the lead singer. And that's part of why Robin left to do his solo project. You know, they were fighting for ego. And I, I even read that Robin had kind of established himself enough with his solo career that all he had to do was sing. But he's he's definitely a worse lead singer. He's just worse at it. Yeah, how pissed do you think he was when, like, Barry first song falsetto and it just uh, killed it on Jive Talk? And he's like, you yeah. son of a bitch. Oh, so I heard, I heard an anecdote <laughs> about that in this documentary, too, that the way they discovered Barry's falsetto... And landed on it was some, I can't remember what song it was. It was a later album where he was doing some end of song vamping. And they were like, somebody just needs to get up there and and scream in tune, like give it a shot. And he's just 
playing around. And then apparently it was a shocking moment in the booth. Everyone's like, oh, man, that's our new sound. So, yeah, that must have been distressing. Yeah, they did. I mean, honestly, I've been I've been going back to some of those, uh, you know, the disco era Bee Gees. Um, I was talking about this with Phil. I, I was learning um, how deep is your love on the ukulele? It's great. It's a great song. The chords are great. I feel like when they sort of discovered that disco sound, they got re-energized. And this seems like they were energized at the beginning and they really were running out of steam and they just kept flogging it. You know, it's really a shame that Adam isn't here this week because he would have been in a really awkward position where we have to defend some of his beliefs about pitch-perfect harmony overcoming all. (laughs) 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 Because, I mean, like, no doubt, no doubt, like, Adam loves, what was the song he just said, like, the... Oh, um, how how deep is your how, love? How deep is your love? Like, there's no that doubt. Great. Yeah, but that's a but that's a much better like song that. than I think any song on this record. <laughs> I would any totally, song, I would strongly way agree. better. Yes. I, no, I put remembering above any other. Deep <laughs> deep. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, um, top song of seventy one. Any other uh, any other uh, final thoughts on remembering before we move on to the epic epic song Trafalgar? Just, I just want to begin forgetting, personally. <laughs> well, listen, we, we talked about it before with, uh, you write a song about Israel, you expect there's going to be maybe some controversial kind of lyrics, something, something profound. You write a song about Trafalgar, and you think that, like, this is, like, pivotal moment in, like, the history of the modern world. Like one of the most epic naval battles until basically like the Battle of Midway in World War Two. Like you'd think that there would be a little bit more going on in this song than there is, but like it's pretty tame. It really doesn't get across anything of like, you know, like uh, England fighting for its very existence. Um, naval battle where they were the underdogs and excellent strategy happened to win the day. And none of that comes through. I, they barely even talk about the battle in the lyrics. I don't really understand. Yeah. I, well, it's, you know, it the, be... the word Trafalgar stands on its own. Oh, you can just course. say it over and over and over again. <laughs> eventually. This is actually eventually a standout song for me. I may have to be, I think it's one of the better songs. It's It's a better version of this style. And that's the, it's the Maurice Gibb written and sung song. Mars Gibb did almost everything on this song because they have like a lead guitar player who's listed on the album. And really the only thing that's not piano or bass or drums or singing on this is kind of like a leady guitar, which I think is this guy, Alan Kendall. So I think that this is basically like no contribution from the other brothers Gibb. You know what this one really, we've mentioned the other Beatles, but what this really sounds like to me is a George Harrison tune, like an all things must pass tune. In a, it's still not as good as the songs on All Things Must Pass, but it has more of that vibe to me. I absolutely think that there are elements of this record that remind me of All Things Must Pass. And some of that sort of like the band ramshackle-ness, like it feels like the wheels might come off, but they don't. Like just some of the takes feel a little more amateurish, but like not in a way that like ruins the take. Does it make sense? Yeah. But yeah, no doubt, like they were aware of the band, all things must pass, like Dylan in the band, and pro- you know, and trying to emulate that sound. Sure, like, very... Crosby, Stills, and Nash, perhaps. Sure. I'd like to point out that the, the 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 few moments where you can really get through the production and you can feel that amateurness, it doesn't add any interest. 
for me. You know, it didn't, it didn't really, you know, it didn't bring that, you know, there's that usually that gleam of kind of like, Oh, you know, you can feel the garage band popping through on this one. I think, I think it's because even maybe by their own admission, they were barely a band at this point. And in fact, I, when I heard them speak a little bit about their disco rejuvenation, their main goal, you know, going to Miami and such and living in that house was like, oh, we want to be a band. We now need a keyboard player. We have a bass player in our brother, but we now need a steady drummer and keyboard player. We want to like practice as a band. I don't get the impression that most of these songs were put together that way. So you get almost no band energy out of it. Well, there's also something to be said for like, you know, the garage bandness aspect peeking through, but like not nine albums in. Like you're nine albums in, I'm yeah. You should be better at this by this point. Like you, or you're basically just like the middle management of music, where you sort of peaked out in your there's, career there, at like not that high of a place, but enough that you can make a living. There's obviously something like contextual here that I don't totally understand because I'm looking at the top songs in 1971, right? And you know, Three Dog Night, Joy to the World, Rod Stewart, Maggie May, Carol King's. Uh, I can feel the earth move. I don't know the Osmonds one bad apple, but the Bee Gees tune, I don't mind a broken heart is the fifth song of the year. And that just seems crazy to me. I, I think it's a pretty okay song overall. I'm not totally surprised that song is a hit, but I, I, we're talking about it in context of this record. If that was the one super ballady, sad song on the record or one of three, but like every single song hits the same mark. And that is elevated songwriting by comparison to the other songs, I think. But it ain't great. I think they're definitely resting on their laurels or riding on their, their past fame. But, like, you know, yes, Phil, you sure. it's a really good point. Let's talk about 1971. Let's talk about just albums that were released in 1971. Uh, you have Sticky Fingers by the Rolling Stones, Who's Next by the Who, who I hate, but that's a good album. Hunky Ooh, Dory, David damn. Bowie, Led Zeppelin Four. Joni Mitchell's Blue, Marvin Gaye's What's Damn. Going On, Jethro Tull's Aqualung. You have Tapestry by Carol King, which might be one of the best albums of all time. What is currently my favorite album of all time, Metal by Pink Floyd, came out in 1971. Mm. Like Electric Warrior by T-Rex came out in 1971. The Yes album, come almost, on. Almost all those albums, too, that you mentioned, they're all great, and they all make me think, of things that are pushing forward into the future. This makes me think of something that's pushing backwards, not just in terms of their reputation and their musical history, but like you said, I think they're still referencing a folky, simpler pop Beatles, 60, you know, sixties era. What was it Skiffle? Yeah. They're, yeah. They're still a Skiffle, <laughs> skiffle. band. <at> heart. <laughs> still a skiffle band. <laughs> yeah. But no, in all honesty, like that's a, that is a murderer's row of albums that came out this year and this how do you mend a broken heart is the number five song of the year from that year that's insane to me like it seems so i mean i could go on there's so many more amazing albums that came out that year um it's yeah bill withers just as i am came out that year come on like again but it must represent – I know we've been trying to reckon with these charts through the whole podcast, and it's it's a little hard to put them in context. But I just – I've come to think that they don't do a great job often of representing what was – what young people liked, right? They must be about the record-buying public or some older 
people who aren't ready for the 70s to actually happen going like i wish it was still the 60s i These wish the Beatles people, stopped at rubber soul they you know they stopped buying organ records you know they were like it's you know i'm trying to think of like a famous organ player giving up on playing the organ i can't even come up with so the author roger dimory would have been 20 or 21 when this record came out so maybe there was a maybe it coincided with an event in his own life that really you know <laughs> made him want to go down the rabbit hole of vacuous sad bastard music just funny you mentioned the the robert dimory book that we're all referencing here I, I i bought a copy of it recently and i looked up his little review of this record and even he agrees a song we're not going to talk about, Dearest. He calls it cringy. You know, he calls yeah. it horrendous. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> In his three-paragraph review for why you must listen to this, he calls one of the songs horrendous. So, you know. Yeah, Dearest is horrible. Absolutely horrible. <laughs> Let's talk about uh, Don't Want to Live Inside Myself, which is, first of all, just like a really depressing title. But... Uh, I'm going to ask you guys, did you also get a very specific song that they stole this from right yes. away? Yes. Right? Yes. I CSNY. hope he gets royalties every time. Every time. Helpless yes. by Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young on Deja Vu, which came out exactly, the year before. It's, the it's exact exactly same the same melody yeah. in the verse. It's exactly it's, the same. Exactly the and same. And it was note. definitely on the radio when they were. You know, I didn't this. hear it, but now that I've heard it, I can't unhear it. I was going to say this was my favorite it. song. <laughs> cannot unhear it. It is helpless. Freaking helpless, dude. Yeah. All right. Let's let's. We're going to do everybody a favor here. We're just going to play a clip of the beginning of this song. Don't want to live inside myself, which is like you know uh, a a hopeless maybe a uh, title. But it also doesn't it doesn't get across Ooh. even the pathos that helpless gets across. And then we're going to play helpless right back to back. And you guys can n- never be able to unhear it again. I am the searcher of my fortunes. I got my right hand on the We got to dig the buried treasure I know exactly how I feel There is a town in North Ontario Extreme comfort memory despair In my mind, I still need a place to go. All my changes were there. How did they get away with it? I appreciate that you're like, they'll never be able to hear it again as if they're going to listen to Trafalgar again. Like, it's like, oh, I've... I, I, every time I spin, you know what? I'm the Bee Gees are about to have a major resurgence because Dave Grohl is doing that whole DGs thing with Foo Fighters, where they're like writing a bunch of disco songs and also covering a bunch of Bee Gees songs, and that's like what their next thing is going to be. I bet you Bee Gees plays are going to go through the roof, um, and people are going to be like, "Which one of their twenty-seven albums should I listen to?" <laughs> <laughs> uh, Not Trafalgar. It's like oh. 
put a gold star besides on that. that bit of heinous theft i i think the tune <laughs> is okay i mean i i did kind of like the tune i have to admit I, com- again in comparison to the other songs on the record i gave this one a little plus this is the one that i feel like they they blatantly stole helpless and then they they transition into like a decent beatles impression and uh maurice gibb does some pretty good paul mccartney bass on it i found that to be you know mollifying i still couldn't get over the fact that the song was stolen but like i i enjoyed it much more so than i enjoyed you know remembering or yeah. uh trafalgar it had a lot more for, to say for the listeners at home can we get a definition of mollifying mollified uh it like you know it uh calmed me down a little bit made me feel okay. better about the situation yeah placated there we go this Thank one you. gave me specifically while my guitar gently weeps vibes in the chorus So yeah, yeah, definitely watered down Beatles, but that was that was how it made me feel. I'm more on a production level than on a melodic level. Some of these songs also give me like a little bit of a Bowie vibe, uh, specifically like the drum sounds. Like again, just like you can tell, they were very aware of what was popular, right? And were trying mm-hmm. to pick and choose what they thought they could use, right? The drum sounds, drum sounds, as we all. No, right, are largely the product of the mixing board that you're using as well. So you kind of have a, a you know, probably pretty pretty much probably it was like product of this was the studio. Well, you guys uh, just really served me up this transition on a silver platter here. Um, if we're ready to move on to Lion in Winter, because I have a serious problem with the beginning of this song. All right, <laughs> they do thirty. Let's, let's, let's roll it. <laughs> right. Let's let's roll the beginning. No, you got you got to know what I'm talking about first. Okay, they did thirty five <laughs> seconds of just drum hits. Okay. And listen to they had they were in a room with like no baffling on it or something like that because you get this slapback sound coming off of the walls from the drum hits that is definitely not intentional. It's like boom boom ta ta boom boom ta ta in the background. It's not. It cannot be on purpose. That is, this is the one bad the, engineering. Is this the one where the bass comes in like real heavy handed, like he's slapping it like yeah. across the face on each note? Yeah. yeah. I yeah. think it's their attempt to be experimental, but it does not work. It's like that is just a rookie production mistake. And I cannot forgive a band who is on their ninth trip around the sun in a studio being like, do you not have baffling in the corners here to prevent this like horrible inadvertent reverb slapback that's coming through on these naked drum beats, drum hits that we insist on putting out for one seventh of the length of the song is just drum hits with nothing else. Now let's roll it. Now let's roll it. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) 
I got it. The part, I mean, that, that part is pretty bad. My, my feeling was that it broke up the monotony of the record, but it was an ex- a failed experiment for sure. I, this song sort of like didn't like hit my radar on the, like the first like three listens. I listened to this record three times before I went back and looked at this, you know, the sort of short list that we talked about, you know, we, we, we knew we would discuss. So this didn't really like make my radar. I guess the back half of the song did. I actually kind of like what I, I, presume is Barry Gibbs vocal performance at the sort of back half of the song. Like he's really bringing it home. Hold on. But, Dude, his vocals are terrible. Let's cue that up because the end of this, he's attempt. Yeah. He gets, he's tempted to go somewhere with it. The, I was a lion. Every course. Every the, course lion, he doesn't. Voice crack. I wrote down, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> yes. <laughs> No, I have timestamps for all of them because I was just like going through and being like timestamp 135. Oh, this is really bad. And it's like, oh, wait. Oh, also, I guess timestamp at 255. This is even worse somehow. Oh, I don't think he really goes off the rails till three minutes. But I, I, I kind of like the I'm spaces in, in between. I'm, I'm at the end of the song. For miles around. Anyway, so so when you guys said, hey, listen to this song, right? You know, like, yeah, yeah, okay, cool, sure. And it came on, and, like, I had just blocked out the whole drum intro. So, like, I, I thought it was a joke. I wondered, is this the whole track four minutes of drums? Like, I, I looked down at 27 seconds and was like, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> and there was more where that came from. So bad. Wow. It's like you're not going to go falsetto. Barry Gibbs, the man known for falsetto, doesn't go falsetto on that note he can't hit. He hadn't accessed it yet. He he didn't have the code. (laughs) Yeah, he He hadn't unlocked it. Not enough enough XP. There is that note in the chorus, though. He just can't get that. Yeah, there's several. There's several in every chorus. And this this gives me hope though that I might unlock my falsetto someday. You know, it's just been it's been. I'm just gonna guess. Based upon the fact that it was like all disco based, that like you have to do a lot of cocaine and it just changes your nasal <laughs> cavity in a way that all of a sudden you're just like, well, I can do falsetto like whistling. All right, this is great. Maybe, maybe he didn't really have a septum <laughs> and that increased uh, airflow. Yeah. It's possible. Could be the teeth. <laughs> Tune their Giant teeth. teeth. They're just resonators. So, all right. So. Back to back to the subject matter of this song. This is a song where he's complaining about money. <laughs> like, is it? I, like, yeah. Okay. So, lion in winter. I'm a lion with no crown. You want to make me a big man, a star on the screen, some kind of James Brown or something in between. But when I look for money, you smother me in charms. I can't live on glory when you're bending both my arms. That's the opening chorus, the opening verse of the song. He's clearly just being like. You're not giving me enough money for the songs that I wrote. Yeah, you know? You're living in a cave, man, right. upon your marble throne. You think they own the heavens, but you got to be alone. Maybe this is like, uh, you know, after his like gigantic divorce payout that he just had to do. <laughs> and he's like, I, At least there's some lyrics here. At least they tried. I feel like this is more of a poem than almost all the other songs on this record. Right. 
I think my overall comment on the lyricism was it was like it was written by a 12 year old. Yeah. 12 year old with money problems. It's like a second. I mean, just the record overall. It's like it was, it's like it was conceived. Except for the strings. I feel strongly about the strings. Yeah. No, no, no. I mean, you know, the arrangements, the, you know, the vocal harmonies, none of that is 12 year old stuff. The lyrics, 100%. Not a lot of effort on the lyrics. Definitely not a lot of effort. No, there's a lot of rhyming. There's a lot of crappy rhyming. There's a lot of phoned in. You know, I remember this is when I was younger. I was trying to woo some girl and I wrote a poem for her. It was really not great. And uh, I showed my older sister and she was just like, hey, listen, man, if you're going to write a poem for a girl, like you got to think about the rhymes like you can't just say the most obvious rhyme every time cuz that it's pretty obvious that you didn't work that hard on this <laughs> like you got to think of the non-obvious rhymes and i'm like oh yeah that makes a lot of sense to make it even worse yeah. i was doing an acrostic with all the letters in their name just wow. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty bad it's pretty bad that's are right, we going to yeah. vote on this record or what <laughs> oh my god <laughs> one one final comment. Lion in Winter was my favorite song on the album. With all the problems that I had with it, it was my favorite song on the album because it felt the most real of any of the songs of the album. I feel like Barry Gibb is actually pissed off about money, and I feel like they're really trying for something here. Everything else, I got nothing below just to skim the surface of a topic. They're like, well, Barry, you just got divorced. You should probably write some songs about that. Oh, okay. I guess we can do that. Um, uh, yeah, Israel's in the news. We're right about that. I don't know. Like, uh, we're British. Trafalgar is cool or something. I don't know. Let's do that. Um, this one, I actually felt like, yeah, he really, he was really pissed off about the fact they didn't have enough money. I, like, don't want to live inside myself until you pointed out that it was a cover song. It's a cover song. Yeah. <laughs> Trafalgar's the one that got kind of stuck in my head, although it's totally airy and kind of... Has no depth. I would agree with that. But I am, my number my number one cut is definitely remembering. <laughs> I just every time I every time I hear the title, I just think of the the, the treatment of remembering that they give. It's so terrible. It's it's like uh, Rob. You always talked about how your dad would like refer to Daniel Day Lewis as he's always acting. You know, like <laughs> yeah. everything is like yeah. so dramatic. That's I got that sort of like drama. <laughs> Always remembering. Uh, so, Jimmy, Jimmy Jam, what do you think? Does this album make the cut? Is this on the list of 1,001 albums you must hear before you die? Let's hear the verdict. I consider this album completely inessential. Well, well Short and sweet. No more to say than that. I like it. Let's move on. Phil, yeah, what do you think? This this record is, is uh, not... Uh, not necessary, not required listening. That said, I would say that it did sort of uh, remind me to do a bit of a, you know, a soft dive into the Bee Gees catalog, which is, I think, worth diving into. The Bee Gees made some good music. This is not good music. Yeah, don't start here. Don't start here. They didn't hit their stride until like album. 12 or 13. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's not sarcasm. That is right. actually true. 13 times a charm. <laughs> Rob, what is your verdict? I'm guessing we got a zero from, we got a zero for two so far. 
Yeah, it's a, it's a no for me as well. I think this choice for Robert Dimery's book is truly odd, kind of similar to the 461 Ocean Boulevard, because I do suspect that the Bee Gees did, had good music. They have so much material. I don't think you should go your entire life without listening to some Bee Gees. That seems reasonable to me. But this just seems like a really strange, inessential place to get that to get that information into your ears. So it's it's a no for me. Hand it over to somebody like Al Green. I bet you if you were to ask the Bee Gees if this belongs in the <laughs> 1001 albums, they'd be like, no, no, it does not. Are you kidding me? We have many better albums than this. James, you, uh, when we first reached out to you about this and you like, sh- you listened to the album, you shot the text back. It's just like, I could definitely go my entire life without spinning this turd. I was right there with you, buddy. Right there with you. I'm not like, this isn't one of those, like, I, 461 Ocean Boulevard, I was like, I'll never get this time of my life back. Um, but at least I have something that I now can, like, reference <laughs> as a, like, a standard bearer for hate. And this is, like, this isn't even, this doesn't even get to that point. It's just completely inessential, completely forgettable. I thought overall, uh... I had to try harder to get through this album than they had to try to make this album. That's, a, that's not a good place to be. Not a good place to be. So there you have it. Sorry, remaining brother Gib. Uh, we are <laughs> 0 for 4. <laughs> 0 for 4 on uh, your album Trafalgar. Making it onto the 1001 albums we must hear before we die. Oof. Better excited. luck next time. Excited to move on. It's a it's a twelve inch single essentially. It's, yeah, as, as Phil has mentioned previous times, like save me a couple of bucks at a yard sale because I definitely would not buy this. <laughs> no matter what bargain bin it is in, I'm not buying this. One. <laughs> yeah, this isn't this isn't worth a dollar. I don't. I, nope. Honestly, I think the cover would have proved me on this one. <laughs> it's better than every Steely Dan cover in the entire catalog. So. <laughs> Right, but that's like this is the magic steely Dan. You know it's good. It's so almost bad. like uh, an inverse relationship between how bad the cover is and how good the album is. I don't think that's uh, true. I think Asia's cover's all right. <laughs> yeah, Asia's cover's pretty. It's it's okay. It's okay. So here's the real question. I know it was on everybody's minds. The listeners, thank you so much for sticking with us all the way through to the end here because I know you're eagerly awaiting. What are we going to do next week? I have the Albinator 5000 here. Got that bad boy primed and ready to go. Let's spin the wheel and see what are we going to examine next week. Drum roll, please. We will be doing The Zombies, Odyssey, and Oracle. I feel like I am excited for this song, for this album. I don't quite know why. Yeah, do we know what, like any of the hits that the are on this are record? Generally good. That's that's what I'm saying. The zombies are generally good, but I don't know any of the songs on this album from the title. Maybe there's like, like you know, they Tell did or no. what the. Hmm, let's see. Let's see. let's pull up their discography. And no, nothing's ringing a bell. Boom, boom, boom. Wow. Look forward to next week diving into this one. Oh, this has oh, time care of the of season. Self-44. Right. Yeah, oh, time of the time season. Of the season. Oh, okay, there we go. Is is this is the critic that wrote this book and like an actual music critic, or is this just like something some guy wrote? 
I, like I think not only is he a critic, but he didn't even write most of the reviews. It's like a team of people. <laughs> it's definitely a sham. Well, in all honesty, like, <laughs> what does it take to be classified as a critic? I can talk shit about music. Clearly, for an hour, we can sit around and talk shit about music. Are we official critics at this point? I think we might. I'm going to update my resume. I think I might get to put music critic as a line item on that. Yeah, music definitely. critic. You're in. Yeah. Oh, well, I'm excited for Zombies, Odyssey, and Oracle. It's a little bit of a highfalutin name. Uh, let's see if the album lives up to it. Until then, listen to that album. We will be dissecting it. You definitely want to have listened to it by then. But uh, thank you so much for listening to our very insightful rantings and ramblings about this incredibly mediocre Bee Gees album. Uh, until next week, I have been Tom. I'm Phil. I'm Rob. I'm James, I guess. <laughs> Are you sure? <laughs> All right, people, we will see you next week. Thank you so much for your time. And as always, keep on booshing on.